The Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge Chapter 17 Introduction It is important for a pilot to be aware of the mental and physical standards required for the type of flying performed. This chapter provides information on medical certification and on a variety of aeromedical factors related to flight activities. Obtaining a medical certificate most pilots must have a valid medical certificate to exercise the privileges of their airman certificates. Glider and free balloon pilots are not required to hold a medical certificate. Sport pilots may hold either a medical certificate or a valid state driver's license. Regardless of whether a medical certificate or driver's license is required, 14 CFR 61.53 requires every pilot not to act as a crew member if they know or have reason to know of any medical condition that would make them unable to operate the aircraft in a safe manner. Acquisition of a medical certificate requires an examination by an aviation medical examiner, AME, a physician with training in aviation medicine designated by the Civil Aerospace Medical Institute, CAMI. There are three classes of medical certificates. The class of certificate needed depends on the type of flying the pilot plans to perform. A third-class medical certificate is required for a private or recreational pilot certificate. It is valid for five years for those individuals who have not reached the age of 40, otherwise it is valid for two years. A commercial pilot certificate requires at least a second-class medical certificate, which is valid for one year. First-class medical certificates are required for airline transport pilots and are valid for one year if the airman is 40 or younger. 40 and older it is valid for 6 months. The standards are more rigorous for the higher classes of certificates. A pilot with a higher class medical certificate has met the requirements for the lower classes as well. Since the required medical class applies only when exercising the privileges of the pilot certificate for which it is required, a first class medical certificate would be valid for one year if exercising the privileges of a commercial certificate and two or five years, as appropriate, for exercising the privileges of a private or recreational certificate. The same applies for a second-class medical certificate. The standards for medical certification are contained in Title 14 of the Code of Federal Regulations, 14 CFR, Part 67, and the requirements for obtaining medical certificates can be found in 14 CFR Part 61. Students who have physical limitations, such as impaired vision, loss of a limb, or hearing impairment may be issued a medical certificate valid for student pilot privileges only while learning to fly. Pilots with disabilities may require special equipment to be installed in the aircraft, such as hand controls for pilots with paraplegia. Some disabilities necessitate a limitation on the individual's certificate. For example, impaired hearing would require the limitation not valid for flight requiring the use of radio. When all the knowledge, experience, and proficiency Requirements have been met and a student can demonstrate the ability to operate the aircraft with the normal level of safety, a statement of demonstrated ability, SODA, can be issued. This waiver, or SODA, is valid as long as the physical impairment does not worsen. Contact the local Flight Standards District Office, FSDO, for more information on this subject. The FAA Medical Standards, 14 CFR Part 67, Specify 15 medical conditions that are considered disqualifying by history or clinical diagnosis. Regardless of when one of these conditions was diagnosed and treated, 
an airman may not be issued a medical certificate except through a process called a special issuance authorization, as explained in 14 CFR Part 67, Section 67.401. A special issuance is a discretionary issuance by the FAA Federal Air Surgeon and requires satisfactory completion of special testing determined by the FAA to demonstrate that an airman is safe to fly for the duration of the medical certificate issued. The specific disqualifying conditions include diabetes mellitus requiring oral hypoglycemic medication or insulin, angina pectoris, coronary heart disease that has been treated or, if untreated, that has been symptomatic or clinically significant, myocardial infarction, cardiac valve replacement, Permanent cardiac pacemaker. Heart replacement. Psychosis. Bipolar disorder. Personality disorder that is severe enough to have repeatedly manifested itself by overt acts. Substance dependence, including alcohol. Substance abuse. Epilepsy. Disturbance of consciousness and without satisfactory explanation of cause. Transient loss of control of nervous system functions without satisfactory explanation of cause. However, this list includes only the mandatory disqualifying conditions. There are many other medical conditions that fall into the general medical conditions section of the regulations that are considered by the FAA to be disqualifying even though they are not stated in the regulations. Conditions such as cancer, kidney stones, Neurologic and neuromuscular conditions, including Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis, certain blood disorders, and other conditions that may progress over time require review by the FAA before a medical certificate may be issued. The important thing to remember is that with very few exceptions, all disqualifying medical conditions may be considered for special issuance. If you can present satisfactory medical documentation to the FAA that your condition is stable, the chances are good that you will be able to qualify for an authorization. Health and physiological factors affecting pilot performance. A number of health factors and physiological effects can be linked to flying. Some are minor, while others are important enough to require special attention to ensure safety of flight. In some cases, physiological factors can lead to in-flight emergencies. Some important medical factors that a pilot should be aware of include hypoxia, hyperventilation, middle ear and sinus problems, spatial disorientation, motion sickness, carbon monoxide, CO, poisoning, stress and fatigue, dehydration, and heat stroke. Other subjects include the effects of alcohol and drugs, anxiety, and excess nitrogen in the blood after scuba diving. Hypoxia Hypoxia means reduced oxygen or not enough oxygen. Although any tissue will die if deprived of oxygen long enough, the greatest concern regarding hypoxia during flight is lack of oxygen to the brain, since it is particularly vulnerable to oxygen deprivation. Any reduction in mental function while flying can result in life-threatening errors. Hypoxia can be caused by several factors, including an insufficient supply of oxygen, inadequate transportation of oxygen, or the inability of the body tissues to use oxygen. The forms of hypoxia are based on their causes. Hypoxic hypoxia. Hypmic hypoxia. Stagnant hypoxia. Histotoxic hypoxia. Hypoxic hypoxia. 
hypoxic hypoxia is a result of insufficient oxygen available to the body as a whole. A blocked airway and drowning are obvious examples of how the lungs can be deprived of oxygen, but the reduction in partial pressure of oxygen at high altitude is an appropriate example for pilots. Although the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere is constant, its partial pressure decreases proportionately as atmospheric pressure decreases. As an aircraft ascends during flight, the percentage of each gas in the atmosphere remains the same, but there are fewer molecules available at the pressure required for them to pass between the membranes in the respiratory system. This decrease in number of oxygen molecules at sufficient pressure can lead to hypoxic hypoxia. Dangers of transporting dry ice Sublimation is a process in which a substance transitions from a solid to a gaseous state without passing through an intermediate liquid state. Dry ice sublimates into large quantities of CO2 gas, which can rapidly displace oxygen-containing air and potentially cause hypoxia via carbon dioxide intoxication. Case studies have shown that both illness and death can be caused by occupational and or unintentional exposure when transporting dry ice in small, confined spaces such as a flight deck or airplane. Exposure to high concentration of CO2 gas may lead to increased respiration, tachycardia, cardiac arrhythmia, and unconsciousness. Exposure to concentration of CO2 gas in excess of 10% may cause convulsions, coma, and or death. The tendency of dry ice to rapidly sublimate also means that without proper ventilation, it can rapidly pressurize. For this reason, dry ice should never be placed inside a sealed transport container, i.e., leak-proof secondary container, and must be placed within an outer shipping container or storage container that allows adequate ventilation to release the CO2 gas and avoid pressurization. Sealing dry ice within a leak-proof container may result in explosion of the container potentially leading to serious physical injury or death. Hypmic hypoxia Hypmic hypoxia occurs when the blood is not able to take up and transport a sufficient amount of oxygen to the cells in the body. Hypmic means not enough blood. This type of hypoxia is a result of oxygen deficiency in the blood, rather than a lack of inhaled oxygen, and can be caused by a variety of factors. It may be due to reduced blood volume, from severe bleeding, or it may result from certain blood diseases, such as anemia. More often, hypmic hypoxia occurs because hemoglobin, the actual blood molecule that transports oxygen, is chemically unable to bind oxygen molecules. The most common form of hypmic hypoxia is CO poisoning. This is explained in greater detail later in this chapter. Hypmic hypoxia can also be caused by the loss of blood due to blood donation. Blood volume can require several weeks to return to normal following a donation. Although the effects of the blood loss are slight at ground level, there are risks when flying during this time. Stagnant hypoxia Stagnant means not flowing, and stagnant hypoxia, or ischemia results, when the oxygen-rich blood in the lungs is not moving, for one reason or another, to the tissues that need it. An arm or leg going to sleep, because the blood flow has accidentally been shut off is one form of stagnant hypoxia. This kind of hypoxia can also result from shock, the heart failing to pump blood effectively, or a constricted artery. During flight, stagnant hypoxia can occur with excessive acceleration of gravity, GS. Cold temperatures can also reduce circulation, 
and decrease the blood supply to extremities. Histotoxic hypoxia. The inability of the cells to effectively use oxygen is defined as histotoxic hypoxia. Histo refers to tissues or cells, and toxic means poisonous. In this case, enough oxygen is being transported to the cells that need it, but they are unable to make use of it. This impairment of cellular respiration can be caused by alcohol and other drugs, such as narcotics and poisons. Research has shown that drinking one ounce of alcohol can equate to an additional 2,000 feet of physiological altitude. Symptoms of hypoxia High-altitude flying can place a pilot in danger of becoming hypoxic. Oxygen starvation causes the brain and other vital organs to become impaired. The first symptoms of hypoxia can include euphoria and a carefree feeling. With increased oxygen starvation, the extremities become less responsive and flying becomes less coordinated. The symptoms of hypoxia vary with the individual, but common symptoms include cyanosis, blue fingernails and lips, headache, decreased response to stimuli and increased reaction time, impaired judgment, euphoria, visual impairment, drowsiness, lightheaded or dizzy sensation, tingling in fingers and toes, numbness. As hypoxia worsens, the field of vision begins to narrow and instrument interpretation can become difficult. Even with all these symptoms, the effects of hypoxia can cause a pilot to have a false sense of security and be deceived into believing everything is normal. Treatment of hypoxia Treatment for hypoxia includes flying at lower altitudes and slash or using supplemental oxygen. All pilots are susceptible to the effects of oxygen starvation, regardless of physical endurance or acclimatization. When flying at high altitudes, it is paramount that oxygen be used to avoid the effects of hypoxia. The term time of useful consciousness describes the maximum time the pilot has to make rational, life-saving decisions and carry them out at a given altitude without supplemental oxygen. As altitude increases above 10,000 feet, the symptoms of hypoxia increase in severity, and the time of useful consciousness rapidly decreases. Figure 17 to 1 since symptoms of hypoxia can be different for each individual, the ability to recognize hypoxia can be greatly improved by experiencing and witnessing the effects of it during an altitude chamber flight. The Federal Aviation Administration FAA, provides this opportunity through aviation. Physiology training, which is conducted at the FAA CAMI in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and at many military facilities across the United States. For information about the FAA's one-day physiological training course with altitude chamber and vertigo demonstrations, visit the FAA website at www.faa.gov. Hyperventilation Hyperventilation is the excessive rate and depth of respiration leading to abnormal loss of carbon dioxide from the blood. This condition occurs more often among pilots than is generally recognized. It seldom incapacitates completely, but it causes disturbing symptoms that can alarm the uninformed pilot. In such cases, increased breathing rate and anxiety further aggravate the problem. Hyperventilation can lead to unconsciousness due to the respiratory system's overriding mechanism to regain control of breathing.
pilots encountering an unexpected stressful situation may subconsciously increase their breathing rate. If flying at higher altitudes, either with or without oxygen, a pilot may have a tendency to breathe more rapidly than normal, which often leads to hyperventilation. Since many of the symptoms of hyperventilation are similar to those of hypoxia, it is important to correctly diagnose and treat the proper condition. If using supplemental oxygen, check the equipment and flow rate to ensure the symptoms are not hypoxia-related. Common symptoms of hyperventilation include Visual impairment Unconsciousness Lightheaded or dizzy sensation Tingling sensations Hot and cold sensations Muscle spasms The treatment for hyperventilation involves restoring the proper carbon dioxide level in the body. Breathing normally is both the best prevention and the best cure for hyperventilation. In addition to slowing the breathing rate, breathing into a paper bag or talking aloud helps to overcome hyperventilation. Recovery is usually rapid once the breathing rate is returned to normal. Middle ear and sinus problems. During climbs and descents, the free gas formerly present in various body cavities expands due to a difference between the pressure of the air outside the body and that of the air inside the body. If the escape of the expanded gas is impeded, pressure builds up within the cavity and pain is experienced. Trapped gas expansion accounts for ear pain and sinus pain, as well as a temporary reduction in the ability to hear. The middle ear is a small cavity located in the bone of the skull. It is closed off from the external ear canal by the eardrum. Normally, pressure differences between the middle ear and the outside world are equalized by a tube leading from inside each ear to the back of the throat on each side called the eustachian tube. These tubes are usually closed but open during chewing, yawning, or swallowing to equalize pressure. Even a slight difference between external pressure and middle ear pressure can cause discomfort. During a climb, middle ear air pressure may exceed the pressure of the air in the external ear canal causing the eardrum to bulge outward. Pilots become aware of this pressure change when they experience alternate sensations of fullness and clearing. During descent, the reverse happens. While the pressure of the air in the external ear canal increases, the middle ear cavity, which equalized with the lower pressure at altitude, is at lower pressure than the external ear canal. This results in the higher outside pressure causing the eardrum to bulge inward. This condition can be more difficult to relieve due to the fact that the partial vacuum tends to constrict the walls of the eustachian tube. To remedy this often painful condition, which also causes a temporary reduction in hearing sensitivity, pinch the nostrils shut, close the mouth and lips, and blow slowly and gently into the mouth and nose. This procedure forces air through the eustachian tube into the middle ear. It may not be possible to equalize the pressure in the ears if a pilot has a cold, an ear infection, or sore throat. A flight in this condition can be extremely painful, as well as damaging to the eardrums. If experiencing minor congestion, nose drops or nasal sprays may reduce the risk of a painful ear. Blockage. Before using any medication, check with an AME to ensure that it will not affect the ability to fly. In a similar way, air pressure in the sinuses equalizes with the pressure in the flight deck through small openings that connect the sinuses to the nasal passages. An upper respiratory infection, such as a cold or sinusitis, 
or a nasal allergic condition can produce enough congestion around an opening to slow equalization. As the difference in pressure between the sinuses and the flight deck increases, congestion may plug the opening. This sinus block occurs most frequently during descent. Slow descent rates can reduce the associated pain. A sinus block can occur in the frontal sinuses, located above each eyebrow, or in the maxillary sinuses, located in each upper cheek. It usually produces excruciating pain over the sinus area. A maxillary sinus block can also make the upper teeth ache. Bloody mucus may discharge from the nasal passages. Sinus block can be avoided by not flying with an upper respiratory infection or nasal allergic condition. Adequate protection is usually not provided by decongestant sprays or drops to reduce congestion around the sinus openings. Oral decongestants have side effects that can impair pilot performance. If a sinus block does not clear shortly after landing, a physician should be consulted. Spatial disorientation and illusions. Spatial disorientation specifically refers to the lack of orientation with regard to the position, attitude, or movement of the airplane in space. The body uses three integrated systems that work together to ascertain orientation and movement in space. Vestibular system, organs found in the inner ear that sense position by the way we are balanced. Somatosensory system, nerves in the skin, muscles, and joints that, along with hearing, sense position based on gravity, feeling, and sound. Visual system, eyes, which sense position based on what is seen. All this information comes together in the brain and, most of the time, the three streams of information agree, giving a clear idea of where and how the body is moving. Flying can sometimes cause these systems to supply conflicting information to the brain, which can lead to disorientation. During flight in visual meteorological conditions, VMC, the eyes are the major orientation source and usually prevail over false sensations from other sensory systems. When these visual cues are removed, as they are in instrument meteorological conditions, IMC, false sensations can cause a pilot to quickly become disoriented. The vestibular system in the inner ear allows the pilot to sense movement and determine orientation in the surrounding environment. In both the left and right inner ear, three semicircular canals are positioned at approximate right angles to each other. Figure 17 to 3, each canal is filled with fluid and has a section full of fine hairs. Acceleration of the inner ear in any direction causes the tiny hairs to deflect, which in turn stimulates nerve impulses, sending messages to the brain. The vestibular nerve transmits the impulses from the utricle, saccule, and semicircular canals to the brain to interpret motion. The somatosensory system sends signals from the skin, joints, and muscles to the brain that are interpreted in relation to the Earth's gravitational pull. These signals determine posture. Inputs from each movement update the body's position to the brain on a constant basis. Seat of the pants flying is largely dependent upon these signals. Used in conjunction with visual and vestibular clues, these sensations can be fairly reliable. However, the body cannot distinguish between acceleration forces due to gravity and those resulting from maneuvering the aircraft, which can lead to sensory illusions and false impressions of an aircraft's orientation and movement. Under normal flight conditions, when there is a visual reference to the horizon and ground, 
The sensory system in the inner ear helps to identify the pitch, roll, and your movements of the aircraft. When visual contact with the horizon is lost, the vestibular system becomes unreliable. Without visual references outside the aircraft, there are many situations in which combinations of normal motions and forces create convincing illusions that are difficult to overcome. Prevention is usually the best remedy for spatial disorientation. Unless a pilot has many hours of training in instrument flight, flight should be avoided in reduced visibility or at night when the horizon is not visible. A pilot can reduce susceptibility to disorienting illusions through training and awareness and learning to rely totally on flight instruments. Vestibular Illusions The Leans A condition called the leans is the most common illusion during flight and is caused by a sudden return to level flight following a gradual and prolonged turn that went unnoticed by the pilot. The reason a pilot can be unaware of such a gradual turn is that human exposure to a rotational acceleration of 2 degrees per second or lower is below the detection threshold of the semicircular canals. Figure 17 to 4, leveling the wings after such a turn may cause an illusion that the aircraft is banking in the opposite direction. In response to such an illusion, a pilot may lean in the direction of the original turn in a corrective attempt to regain the perception of a correct vertical posture. Coriolis Illusion The Coriolis illusion occurs when a pilot has been in a turn long enough for the fluid in the ear canal to move at the same speed as the canal. A movement of the head in a different plane, such as looking at something in a different part of the flight deck, may set the fluid moving. Creating the illusion of turning or accelerating on an entirely different axis. This action causes the pilot to think the aircraft is performing a maneuver it is not. The disoriented pilot may maneuver the aircraft into a dangerous attitude in an attempt to correct the aircraft's perceived attitude. For this reason, it is important that pilots develop an instrument cross-check or scan that involves minimal head movement. Take care when retrieving charts and other objects in the flight deck. If something is dropped, retrieve it with minimal head movement and be alert for the Coriolis illusion. Graveyard Spiral as in other illusions, a pilot in a prolonged coordinated, constant-rate turn may experience the illusion of not turning. During the recovery to level flight, the pilot will then experience the sensation of turning in the opposite direction causing the disoriented pilot to return the aircraft to its original turn. Because an aircraft tends to lose altitude in turns unless the pilot compensates for the loss in lift, the pilot may notice a loss of altitude. The absence of any sensation of turning creates the illusion of being in a level descent. The pilot may pull back on the controls in an attempt to climb or stop the descent. This action tightens the spiral and increases the loss of altitude. This illusion is referred to as a graveyard spiral. Figure 17 to 5, this may lead to a loss of aircraft control. Somatographic illusion. A rapid acceleration, such as experienced during takeoff, stimulates the otolith organs in the same way as tilting the head backwards. This action may create what is known as the somatographic illusion of being in a nose-up attitude, especially in conditions with poor visual references. The disoriented pilot may push the aircraft into a nose-low or dive attitude. A rapid deceleration by quick reduction of the throttles can have the opposite effect, with the disoriented pilot pulling the aircraft into a nose-up or stall attitude. Inversion Illusion 
An abrupt change from climb to straight and level flight can stimulate the otolith organs enough to create the illusion of tumbling backwards, known as inversion illusion. The disoriented pilot may push the aircraft abruptly into a nose-low attitude, which may intensify this illusion. Elevator illusion An abrupt upward vertical acceleration, as can occur in an updraft, can stimulate the otolith organs to create the illusion of being in a climb. This is known as elevator illusion. The disoriented pilot may push the aircraft into a nose-low attitude. An abrupt downward vertical acceleration, usually in a downdraft, has the opposite effect with the disoriented pilot pulling the aircraft into a nose-up attitude. Visual illusions. Visual illusions are especially hazardous because pilots rely on their eyes for correct information. Two illusions that lead to spatial disorientation, false horizon and autokinesis, affect the visual system only. False horizon. A sloping cloud formation, an obscured horizon, an aurora borealis, a dark scene spread with ground lights and stars, and certain geometric patterns of ground lights can provide inaccurate visual information, or false horizon, when attempting to align the aircraft with the actual horizon. The disoriented pilots as a result may place the aircraft in a dangerous attitude. Autokinesis When flying in the dark, a stationary light may appear to move if it is stared at for a prolonged period of time. As a result, a pilot may attempt to align the aircraft with the perceived moving light potentially causing him her to lose control of the aircraft. This illusion is known as autokinesis. Postural considerations The postural system sends signals from the skin, joints, and muscles to the brain that are interpreted in relation to the Earth's gravitational pull. These signals determine posture. Inputs from each movement update the body's position to the brain on a constant basis. Seat of the pants flying is largely dependent upon these signals. Used in conjunction with visual and vestibular clues, these sensations can be fairly reliable. However, because of the forces acting upon the body in certain flight situations, many false sensations can occur due to acceleration forces overpowering gravity. Figure 17 to 6, these situations include uncoordinated turns, climbing turns, and turbulence. Demonstration of Spatial Disorientation There are a number of controlled aircraft maneuvers a pilot can perform to experiment with spatial disorientation. While each maneuver normally creates a specific illusion, any false sensation is an effective demonstration of disorientation. Thus, even if there is no sensation during any of these maneuvers, the absence of sensation is still an effective demonstration because it illustrates the inability to detect bank or roll. There are several objectives in demonstrating these various maneuvers. 1. They teach pilots to understand the susceptibility of the human system to spatial disorientation. 2. They demonstrate that judgments of aircraft attitude based on bodily sensations are frequently false. 3. They help decrease the occurrence and degree of disorientation through a better understanding of the relationship between aircraft motion, head movements, and resulting disorientation. 4. They help instill a greater confidence in relying on flight instruments for assessing true aircraft attitude. A pilot should not attempt any of these maneuvers at low altitudes, or in the absence of an instructor pilot, or an appropriate safety pilot. Climbing while accelerating. With the pilot's eyes closed, 
The instructor pilot maintains approach airspeed in a straight and level attitude for several seconds, then accelerates while maintaining straight and level attitude. The usual illusion during this maneuver, without visual references, is that the aircraft is climbing. Climbing while turning. With the pilot's eyes still closed and the aircraft in a straight and level attitude, the instructor pilot now executes, with a relatively slow entry, a well-coordinated turn of about 1.5 positive g, approximately 50 degrees bank, for 90 degrees. While in the turn, without outside visual references and under the effect of the slight positive g, the usual illusion produced is that of a climb. Upon sensing the climb, the pilot should immediately open the eyes to see that a slowly established, coordinated turn produces the same sensation as a climb. Diving while turning Repeating the previous procedure, but with the pilot's eyes should be kept closed until recovery from the turn is approximately one-half completed, can create the illusion of diving while turning. Tilting to right or left While in a straight and level attitude, with the pilot's eyes closed, the instructor pilot executes a moderate or slight skid to the left with wings level. This creates the illusion of the body being tilted to the right. Reversal of motion This illusion can be demonstrated in any of the three planes of motion. While straight and level, with the pilot's eyes closed, the instructor pilot smoothly and positively rolls the aircraft to approximately 45 degrees bank attitude while maintaining heading and pitch attitude. This creates the illusion of a strong sense of rotation in the opposite direction. After this illusion is noted, the pilot should open his or her eyes and observe that the aircraft is in a banked attitude. Diving or rolling beyond the vertical plane. This maneuver may produce extreme disorientation. While in straight and level flight, the pilot should sit normally, either with eyes closed or gaze lowered to the floor. The instructor pilot starts a positive, coordinated roll toward a 30 degrees or 40 degrees angle of bank. As this is in progress, the pilot tilts his or her head forward, looks to the right or left, then immediately returns his or her head to an upright position. The instructor pilot should time the maneuver so the roll is stopped as the pilot returns his or her head upright. An intense disorientation is usually produced by this maneuver, and the pilot experiences the sensation of falling downward into the direction of the roll. In the descriptions of these maneuvers, the instructor pilot is doing the flying, but having the pilot do the flying can also be a very effective demonstration. The pilot should close his or her eyes and tilt the head to one side. The instructor pilot tells the pilot what control inputs to perform. The pilot then attempts to establish the correct attitude or control input with eyes closed and head tilted. While it is clear the pilot has no idea of the actual attitude, he or she will react to what the senses are saying. After a short time, the pilot will become disoriented, and the instructor pilot will tell the pilot to look up and recover. This exercise allows the pilot to experience the disorientation while flying the aircraft. Coping with spatial disorientation To prevent illusions and their potentially disastrous consequences, pilots can 1. Understand the causes of these illusions and remain constantly alert for them. Take the opportunity to experience spatial disorientation illusions in a device, such as a Barani chair, a vertigan, or a virtual reality spatial disorientation demonstrator. 2. Always obtain and understand pre-flight weather briefings.
3. Before flying in marginal visibility, less than 3 miles, or where a visible horizon is not evident, such as flight over open water during the night, obtain training and maintain proficiency in aircraft control by reference to instruments. 4. Do not fly into adverse weather conditions, or into dusk or darkness unless proficient in the use of flight instruments. If intending to fly at night, maintain night flight currency and proficiency. Include cross-country and local operations at various airfields. 5. Ensure that when outside visual references are used, they are reliable, fixed points on the Earth's surface. 6. Avoid sudden head movement, particularly during takeoffs, turns, and approaches to landing. 7. Be physically tuned for flight into reduced visibility. Ensure proper rest, adequate diet, and, if flying at night, allow for night adaptation. Remember that illness, medication, alcohol, fatigue, sleep loss, and mild hypoxia are likely to increase susceptibility to spatial disorientation. 8. Most importantly, become proficient in the use of flight instruments and rely upon them. Trust the instruments and disregard your sensory perceptions. The sensations that lead to illusions during instrument flight conditions are normal perceptions experienced by pilots. These undesirable sensations cannot be completely prevented, but through training and awareness, pilots can ignore or suppress them by developing absolute reliance on the flight instruments. As pilots gain proficiency in instrument flying, they become less susceptible to these illusions and their effects. Optical Illusions Of the senses, vision is the most important for safe flight. However, various terrain features and atmospheric conditions can create optical illusions. These illusions are primarily associated with landing. Since pilots must transition from reliance on instruments to visual cues outside the flight deck for landing at the end of an instrument approach, it is imperative that they be aware of the potential problems associated with these illusions and take appropriate corrective action. The major illusions leading to landing errors are described below. Runway width illusion A narrower than usual runway can create an illusion that the aircraft is at a higher altitude than it actually is, especially when runway length to width relationships are comparable. Figure 17 to 7, the pilot who does not recognize this illusion will fly a lower approach, with the risk of striking objects along the approach path or landing short. A wider than usual runway can have the opposite effect with the risk of the pilot leveling out the aircraft high and landing hard or overshooting the runway. Runway and terrain slopes illusion. An upsloping runway, upsloping terrain, or both can create an illusion that the aircraft is at a higher altitude than it actually is. Figure 17 to 7, the pilot who does not recognize this illusion will fly a lower approach. Downsloping runways and downsloping approach terrain can have the opposite effect. Featureless terrain illusion. An absence of surrounding ground features, as in an overwater approach over darkened areas or terrain made featureless by snow, can create an illusion that the aircraft is at a higher altitude than it actually is. This illusion, sometimes referred to as the black hole approach, causes pilots to fly a lower approach than is desired. Water refraction Rain on the windscreen can create an illusion of being at a higher altitude due to the horizon appearing lower than it is. This can result in the pilot flying a lower approach. 
haze. Atmospheric haze can create an illusion of being at a greater distance and height from the runway. As a result, the pilot has a tendency to be low on the approach. Conversely, extremely clear air, clear bright conditions of a high-attitude airport, can give the pilot the illusion of being closer than he or she actually is, resulting in a high approach that may result in an overshoot or go around. The diffusion of light due to water particles on the windshield can adversely affect depth perception. The lights and terrain features normally used to gauge height during landing become less effective for the pilot. Fog Flying into fog can create an illusion of pitching up. Pilots who do not recognize this illusion often steepen the approach abruptly. Ground lighting illusions Lights along a straight path, such as a road or lights on moving trains, can be mistaken for runway and approach lights. Bright runway and approach lighting systems, especially where few lights illuminate the surrounding terrain, may create the illusion of less distance to the runway. The pilot who does not recognize this illusion will often fly a higher approach. How to prevent landing errors due to optical illusions To prevent these illusions and their potentially hazardous consequences, pilots can 1. Anticipate the possibility of visual illusions during approaches to unfamiliar airports, particularly at night or in adverse weather conditions. Consult airport diagrams and the chart supplement U.S., formerly airport-slash-facility directory, for information on runway slope, terrain, and lighting. 2. Make frequent reference to the altimeter, especially during all approaches, day and night. 3. If possible, conduct an aerial visual inspection of unfamiliar airports before landing. 4. Use Visual Approach Slope Indicator, VASI, or Precision Approach Path Indicator, POPI, systems for a visual reference or an electronic glide slope whenever they are available. 5. Utilize the Visual Descent Point, VDP found on many non-precision instrument approach procedure charts. 6. Recognize that the chances of being involved in an approach accident increase when an emergency or other activity distracts from usual procedures. 7. Maintain optimum proficiency in landing procedures. In addition to the sensory illusions due to misleading inputs to the vestibular system, a pilot may also encounter various visual illusions during flight. Illusions rank among the most common factors cited as contributing to fatal aviation accidents. Sloping cloud formations, an obscured horizon, a dark scene spread with ground lights and stars, and certain geometric patterns of ground light can create illusions of not being aligned correctly with the actual horizon. Various surface features and atmospheric conditions encountered in landing can create illusions of being on the wrong approach path. Landing errors due to these illusions can be prevented by anticipating them during approaches, inspecting unfamiliar airports before landing, using electronic glide slope or VASI systems when available, and maintaining proficiency in landing procedures. Motion sickness Motion sickness, or air sickness, is caused by the brain receiving conflicting messages about the state of the body. A pilot may experience motion sickness during initial flights, but it generally goes away within the first few lessons. Anxiety and stress, which may be experienced at the beginning of flight training, can contribute to motion sickness. Symptoms of motion sickness include general discomfort, nausea, dizziness, paleness, sweating, and vomiting.
It is important to remember that experiencing airsickness is no reflection on one's ability as a pilot. If prone to motion sickness, let the flight instructor know there are techniques that can be used to overcome this problem. For example, avoid lessons in turbulent conditions until becoming more comfortable in the aircraft or start with shorter flights and graduate to longer instruction periods. If symptoms of motion sickness are experienced during a lesson, opening fresh air vents, focusing on objects outside the airplane, and avoiding unnecessary head movements may help alleviate some of the discomfort. Although medications like Dramamine can prevent air sickness in passengers, they are not recommended while flying since they can cause drowsiness and other problems. Carbon monoxide, CO, poisoning. CO is a colorless and odorless gas produced by all internal combustion engines. Attaching itself to the hemoglobin in the blood about 200 times more easily than oxygen, CO prevents the hemoglobin from carrying oxygen to the cells, resulting in hypmic hypoxia. The body requires up to 48 hours to dispose of CO. If severe enough, the CO poisoning can result in death. Aircraft heater vents and defrost vents may provide CO a passageway into the cabin, particularly if the engine exhaust system has a leak or is damaged. If a strong odor of exhaust gases is detected, assume that CO is present. However, CO may be present in dangerous amounts even if no exhaust odor is detected. Disposable, inexpensive CO detectors are widely available. In the presence of CO, these detectors change color to alert the pilot of the presence of CO. Some effects of CO poisoning are headache, blurred vision, dizziness, drowsiness, and or loss of muscle power. Any time a pilot smells exhaust odor, or any time these symptoms are experienced, immediate corrective action should be taken including turning off the heater, opening fresh air vents and windows, and using supplemental oxygen, if available. Tobacco smoke also causes CO poisoning. Smoking at sea level can raise the CO concentration in the blood and result in physiological effects similar to flying at 8,000 feet. Besides hypoxia, tobacco causes diseases and physiological debilitation that can be medically disqualifying for pilots. Stress Stress is the body's response to physical and psychological demands placed upon it. The body's reaction to stress includes releasing chemical hormones, such as adrenaline, into the blood and increasing metabolism to provide more energy to the muscles. Blood sugar, heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, and perspiration all increase. The term stressor is used to describe an element that causes an individual to experience stress. Examples of stressors include physical stress, noise or vibration, physiological stress, fatigue, and psychological stress, difficult work, or personal situations. Stress falls into two broad categories, acute, short-term, and chronic, long-term. Acute stress involves an immediate threat that is perceived as danger. This is the type of stress that triggers a fight-or-flight response in an individual, whether the threat is real or imagined. Normally, a healthy person can cope with acute stress and prevent stress overload. However, ongoing acute stress can develop into chronic stress. Chronic stress can be defined as a level of stress that presents an intolerable burden, exceeds the ability of an individual to cope, and causes individual performance to fall sharply. Unrelenting psychological pressures, 
such as loneliness, financial worries, and relationship, or work problems can produce a cumulative level of stress that exceeds a person's ability to cope with the situation. When stress reaches these levels, performance falls off rapidly. Pilots experiencing this level of stress are not safe and should not exercise their airman privileges. Pilots who suspect they are suffering from chronic stress should consult a physician. Fatigue Fatigue is frequently associated with pilot error. Some of the effects of fatigue include degradation of attention and concentration, impaired coordination, and decreased ability to communicate. These factors seriously influence the ability to make effective decisions. Physical fatigue results from sleep loss, exercise, or physical work. Factors such as stress and prolonged performance of cognitive work result in mental fatigue. Like stress, fatigue falls into two broad categories, acute and chronic. Acute fatigue is short-term and is a normal occurrence in everyday living. It is the kind of tiredness people feel after a period of strenuous effort, excitement, or lack of sleep. Rest after exertion and eight hours of sound sleep ordinarily cures this condition. A special type of acute fatigue is skill fatigue. This type of fatigue has two main effects on performance. Timing disruption, appearing to perform a task as usual, but the timing of each component is slightly off. This makes the pattern of the operation less smooth because the pilot performs each component as though it were separate instead of part of an integrated activity. Disruption of the perceptual field, concentrating attention upon movements or objects in the center of vision and neglecting those in the periphery. This is accompanied by loss of accuracy and smoothness in control movements. Acute fatigue has many causes, but the following are among the most important for the pilot. Mild hypoxia, oxygen deficiency. Physical stress. Psychological stress. Depletion of physical energy resulting from psychological stress. Sustained psychological stress. Sustained psychological stress accelerates the glandular secretions that prepare the body for quick reactions during an emergency. These secretions make the circulatory and respiratory systems work harder, and the liver releases energy to provide the extra fuel needed for brain and muscle work. When this reserve energy supply is depleted, the body lapses into generalized and severe fatigue. Acute fatigue can be prevented by proper diet and adequate rest and sleep. A well-balanced diet prevents the body from needing to consume its own tissues as an energy source. Adequate rest maintains the body's store of vital energy. Chronic fatigue, extending over a long period of time, usually has psychological roots, although an underlying disease is sometimes responsible. Continuous high stress levels produce chronic fatigue. Chronic fatigue is not relieved by proper diet and adequate rest and sleep and usually requires treatment by a physician. An individual may experience this condition in the form of weakness, tiredness, palpitations of the heart, breathlessness, headaches, or irritability. Sometimes chronic fatigue even creates stomach or intestinal problems and generalized aches and pains throughout the body. When the condition becomes serious enough, it leads to emotional illness. If suffering from acute fatigue, stay on the ground. If fatigue occurs in the flight deck, no amount of training or experience can overcome the detrimental effects. 
Getting adequate rest is the only way to prevent fatigue from occurring. Avoid flying without a full night's rest, after working excessive hours, or after an especially exhausting or stressful day. Pilots who suspect they are suffering from chronic fatigue should consult a physician. Exposure to chemicals When conducting pre-flight and post-flight inspections, pilots must verify that the fluid levels in their aircraft meet the levels specified for safe operations as stated in the pilot's operating handbook. These fluids include, but are not limited to hydraulic fluid, engine oil, and fuel. It is important that every pilot recognize the potential hazards of working with these fluids, as well as the recommended first aid measures to follow should any of these fluids come in contact with their eyes, skin, and or respiratory system. As the specific first aid measures for dealing with exposure to these chemicals can vary by chemical type, it is important that every pilot be familiar with the location and use of the Material Safety Data Sheet, MSDS, for each chemical they encounter. The procedures described in the following sections are minimum guideline for first aid for each of the indicated scenarios. Ultimately, the pilot should consult the MSDS for first aid procedures specific to the type of chemical and exposure scenario. Hydraulic fluid. Eye contact, immediately flush the eyes with clean water and seek medical attention if irritation occurs. Skin contact, remove all contaminated clothing and thoroughly cleanse the affected areas with mild soap and water or a waterless hand cleaner. If irritation or redness develops and persists, seek medical attention. Should the hydraulic fluid get into or under the skin or into any other part of the body, regardless of the appearance of the wound or its size, seek medical attention immediately. Inhalation, if respiratory symptoms develop, move away from the source of exposure and into fresh air in a position comfortable for breathing. If symptoms persist, seek medical attention. Ingestion, first aid is not normally required, however, if swallowed and symptoms develop, seek medical attention. Engine oil. Eye contact, immediately flush the eyes with clean water and seek medical attention if irritation occurs. Skin contact, remove all contaminated clothing and thoroughly cleanse the affected areas with soap and water. Launder contaminated clothing before reuse. Inhalation, move away from the source of exposure and into fresh air. If respiratory irritation, dizziness, nausea, or unconsciousness occurs, seek immediate medical attention. If breathing stops, assisted ventilation is required via a bag valve mask or cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. Ingestion, seek immediate medical attention. If immediate medical attention is not available, contact a regional poison control center or emergency medical professional regarding the induction of vomiting or use of activated charcoal. Vomiting should never be induced to a person who is groggy or unconscious. Fuel. Eye contact, immediately flush the eyes with clean water for at least 15 minutes and seek medical attention immediately. Skin contact, remove all contaminated clothing and thoroughly cleanse the affected areas with mild soap and water or a waterless hand cleaner. If skin surface is damaged, apply a clean dressing and seek medical attention. If irritation or redness develops, seek medical attention. Launder contaminated clothing before reuse. Inhalation, 
move away from the source of exposure and into fresh air. If breathing stops, assisted ventilation is required via a bag valve mask or cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. Once breathing is restored, the use of additional oxygen may be necessary. Seek medical attention immediately. Ingestion, seek immediate medical attention. Do not induce vomiting or take anything by mouth as this may cause the material to enter the lungs and cause severe lung damage. Should vomiting occur, keep head below the hips to reduce the risks of aspiration. Monitor for breathing difficulties. Rinse out any material which enters the mouth until the taste is dissipated. Dehydration and heat stroke. Dehydration is the term given to a critical loss of water from the body. Causes of dehydration are hot flight decks and flight lines, wind, humidity, and diuretic drinks, coffee, tea, alcohol, and caffeinated soft drinks. Some common signs of dehydration are headache, fatigue, cramps, sleepiness, and dizziness. The first noticeable effect of dehydration is fatigue, which in turn makes top physical and mental performance difficult, if not impossible. Flying for long periods in hot summer temperatures or at high altitudes increases the susceptibility to dehydration because these conditions tend to increase the rate of water loss from the body. To help prevent dehydration, drink 2 to 4 quarts of water every 24 hours. Since each person is physiologically different, this is only a guide. Most people are aware of the 8 glasses a day guide. If each glass of water is 8 ounces, this equates to 64 ounces, which is 2 quarts. If this fluid is not replaced, fatigue progresses to dizziness, weakness, nausea, tingling of hands and feet, abdominal cramps, and extreme thirst. The key for pilots is to be continually aware of their condition. Most people become thirsty with a 1.5-quart deficit, or a loss of 2% of total body weight. This level of dehydration triggers the thirst mechanism. The problem is that the thirst mechanism arrives too late and is turned off too easily. A small amount of fluid in the mouth turns this mechanism off and the replacement of needed body fluid is delayed. Other steps to prevent dehydration include Carrying a container in order to measure daily water intake Staying ahead, not relying on the thirst sensation as an alarm If plain water is not preferred, Add some sport drink flavoring to make it more acceptable. Limiting daily intake of caffeine and alcohol, both are diuretics and stimulate increased production of urine. Heatstroke is a condition caused by any inability of the body to control its temperature. Onset of this condition may be recognized by the symptoms of dehydration, but also has been known to be recognized only upon complete collapse. To prevent these symptoms, it is recommended that an ample supply of water be carried and used at frequent intervals on any long flight, whether thirsty or not. The body normally absorbs water at a rate of 1.2 to 1.5 quarts per hour. Individuals should drink 1 quart per hour for severe heat stress conditions or 1 pint per hour for moderate stress conditions. If the aircraft has a canopy or roof window, wearing light-colored, porous clothing, and a hat will help provide protection from the sun. Keeping the flight deck well-ventilated aids in dissipating excess heat. Alcohol Alcohol impairs the efficiency of the human body. 
Figure 17 to 8 studies have shown that consuming alcohol is closely linked to performance deterioration. Pilots must make hundreds of decisions, some of them time critical, during the course of a flight. The safe outcome of any flight depends on the ability to make the correct decisions and take the appropriate actions during routine occurrences, as well as abnormal situations. The influence of alcohol drastically reduces the chances of completing a flight without incident. Even in small amounts, alcohol can impair judgment, decrease sense of responsibility, affect coordination, constrict visual field, diminish memory, reduce reasoning ability, and lower attention span. As little as one ounce of alcohol can decrease the speed and strength of muscular reflexes, lessen the efficiency of eye movements while reading, and increase the frequency at which errors are committed. Impairments in vision and hearing can occur from consuming as little as one drink. The alcohol consumed in beer and mixed drinks is ethyl alcohol, a central nervous system depressant. From a medical point of view, it acts on the body much like a general anesthetic. The dose is generally much lower and more slowly consumed in the case of alcohol, but the basic effects on the human body are similar. Alcohol is easily and quickly absorbed by the digestive tract. The bloodstream absorbs about 80 to 90% of the alcohol in a drink within 30 minutes when ingested on an empty stomach. The body requires about three hours to rid itself of all the alcohol contained in one mixed drink or one beer. While experiencing a hangover, a pilot is still under the influence of alcohol. Although a pilot may think he or she is functioning normally, motor and mental response impairment is still present. Considerable amounts of alcohol can remain in the body for over 16 hours, so pilots should be cautious about flying too soon after drinking. Altitude multiplies the effects of alcohol on the brain. When combined with altitude, the alcohol from two drinks may have the same effect as three or four drinks. Alcohol interferes with the brain's ability to utilize oxygen, producing a form of histotoxic hypoxia. The effects are rapid because alcohol passes quickly into the bloodstream. In addition, the brain is a highly vascular organ that is immediately sensitive to changes in the blood's composition. For a pilot, the lower oxygen availability at altitude and the lower capability of the brain to use the oxygen that is available can add up to a deadly combination. Intoxication is determined by the amount of alcohol in the bloodstream. This is usually measured as a percentage by weight in the blood. 14 CFR Part 91 requires that blood alcohol level be less than 0.04% and that 8 hours pass between drinking alcohol and piloting an aircraft. A pilot with a blood alcohol level of 0.04% or greater after 8 hours cannot fly until the blood alcohol falls below that amount. Even though blood alcohol may be well below 0.04%, a pilot cannot fly sooner than eight hours after drinking alcohol. Although the regulations are quite specific, it is a good idea to be more conservative than the regulations. Drugs The Federal Aviation Regulations include no specific references to medication usage. Two regulations, though, are important to keep in mind. Title 14 of the CFR Part 61 Section 61.53 prohibits acting as pilot in command or in any other capacity as a required pilot flight crew member while that person 1. knows or has reason to know of any medical condition 
that would make the person unable to meet the requirement for the medical certificate necessary for the pilot operation, or 2. is taking medication or receiving other treatment for a medical condition that results in the person being unable to meet the requirements for the medical certificate necessary for the pilot operation. Further, 14 CFR Part 91, Section 91.17 prohibits the use of any drug that affects the person's faculties in any way contrary to safety. There are several thousand medications currently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, not including OTC, over-the-counter, drugs. Virtually all medications have the potential for adverse side effects in some people. Additionally, herbal and dietary supplements, sport and energy boosters, and some other natural products are derived from substances often found in medications that could also have adverse side effects. While some individuals experience no side effects with a particular drug or product, others may be noticeably affected. The FAA regularly reviews FDA and other data to assure that medications found acceptable for aviation duties do not pose an adverse safety risk. Drugs that cause no apparent side effects on the ground can create serious problems at even relatively low altitudes. Even at typical general aviation altitudes, the changes in concentrations of atmospheric gases in the blood can enhance the effects of seemingly innocuous drugs that can result in impaired judgment, decision-making, and performance. In addition, fatigue, stress, dehydration, and inadequate nutrition can increase an airman's susceptibility to adverse effects from various drugs, even if they appeared to tolerate them in the past. If multiple medications are being taken at the same time, the adverse effects can be even more pronounced. Another important consideration is that the medical condition for which a medication is prescribed may itself be disqualifying. The FAA will consider the condition in the context of risk for medical incapacitation, and the medication, as well for cognitive impairment, and either or both could be found unacceptable for medical certification. Some of the most commonly used OTC drugs, antihistamines and decongestants, have the potential to cause noticeable adverse side effects, including drowsiness and cognitive deficits. The symptoms associated with common upper respiratory infections, including the common cold, often suppress a pilot's desire to fly, and treating symptoms with a drug that causes adverse side effects only compounds the problem. Particularly, medications containing diphenhydramine, example, Benadryl, are known to cause drowsiness and have a prolonged half-life, meaning the drugs stay in one system for an extended time, which lengthens the time that side effects are present. Many medications, such as tranquilizers, sedatives, strong pain relievers, and cough suppressants, have primary effects that may impair judgment, memory, alertness, coordination, vision, and the ability to make calculations. Figure 17 to 9, others, such as antihistamines, blood pressure drugs, muscle relaxants, and agents to control diarrhea and motion sickness, have side effects that may impair the same critical functions. Any medication that depresses the nervous system, such as a sedative, tranquilizer, or antihistamine, can make a pilot more susceptible to hypoxia. Painkillers are grouped into two broad categories, analgesics and anesthetics. Analgesics are drugs that reduce pain, while anesthetics are drugs that deaden pain or cause loss of consciousness. Over-the-counter analgesics, such as acetylsalicylic acid, aspirin, acetaminophen, 
Tylenol, and ibuprofen, Advil, have few side effects when taken in the correct dosage. Although some people are allergic to certain analgesics or may suffer from stomach irritation, flying usually is not restricted when taking these drugs. However, flying is almost always precluded while using prescription analgesics, such as drugs containing propoxyphene, example, Darvon, Oxycodone, example, Percodan, Meperidine, example, Demerol, and Codeine, since these drugs are known to cause side effects such as mental confusion, dizziness, headaches, nausea, and vision problems. Anesthetic drugs are commonly used for dental and surgical procedures. Most local anesthetics used for minor dental and outpatient procedures were off within a relatively short period of time. The anesthetic itself may not limit flying as much as the actual procedure and subsequent pain. Stimulants are drugs that excite the central nervous system and produce an increase in alertness and activity. Amphetamines, caffeine, and nicotine are all forms of stimulants. Common uses of these drugs include appetite suppression, fatigue reduction, and mood elevation. Some of these drugs may cause a stimulant reaction, even though this reaction is not their primary function. In some cases, stimulants can produce anxiety and mood swings, both of which are dangerous when flying. Depressants are drugs that reduce the body's functioning in many areas. These drugs lower blood pressure, reduce mental processing, and slow motor and reaction responses. There are several types of drugs that can cause a depressing effect on the body, including tranquilizers, motion sickness medication, some types of stomach medication, decongestants, and antihistamines. The most common depressant is alcohol. Some drugs that are classified as neither stimulants nor depressants have adverse effects on flying. For example, some antibiotics can produce dangerous side effects, such as balance disorders, hearing loss, nausea, and vomiting. While many antibiotics are safe for use while flying, the infection requiring the antibiotic may prohibit flying. In addition, unless specifically prescribed by a physician, do not take more than one drug at a time and never mix drugs with alcohol because the effects are often unpredictable. The dangers of illegal drugs also are well documented. Certain illegal drugs can have hallucinatory effects that occur days or weeks after the drug is taken. Obviously, these drugs have no place in the aviation community. 14 CFR prohibits pilots from performing crew member duties while using any medication that affects the body in any way contrary to safety. The safest rule is not to fly as a crew member while taking any medication, unless approved to do so by the FAA. If there is any doubt regarding the effects of any medication, consult an AME before flying. Prior to each and every flight, all pilots must do a proper physical self-assessment to ensure safety. A great mnemonic, covered in Chapter 2 on Aeronautical Decision-Making, is IMSAFE, which stands for illness, medication, stress, alcohol, fatigue, and emotion. For the medication component of IMSAFE, pilots need to ask themselves, am I taking any medicines that might affect my judgment or make me drowsy? For any new medication, OTC, or prescribed, you should wait at least 48 hours after the first dose before flying to determine you do not have any adverse side effects that would make it unsafe to operate an aircraft. In addition to medication questions, pilots should also consider the following. Do not take any unnecessary or elective medications.
Make sure you eat regular balanced meals. Bring a snack for both you and your passengers for the flight. Maintain good hydration, bring plenty of water. Ensure adequate sleep the night prior to the flight. Stay physically fit. Additionally, you should wait at least five maximal dosing intervals, the time between recommended or prescribed dosing. Example, a dosing interval of five to six hours would require you to wait 30 hours before flying after taking any medication that has potentially adverse side effects. Example, sedating or dizziness. Observing the recommended dosing interval doesn't eliminate the risk for adverse side effects because everyone metabolizes medications differently. However, five times the dosing interval is a reasonable rule of thumb. Altitude-induced decompression sickness, DCS. Decompression sickness, DCS, describes a condition characterized by a variety of symptoms resulting from exposure to low barometric pressures that cause inert gases mainly nitrogen, normally dissolved in body fluids and tissues, to come out of physical solution and form bubbles. Nitrogen is an inert gas normally stored throughout the human body, tissues and fluids in physical solution. When the body is exposed to decreased barometric pressures, as in flying an unpressurized aircraft to altitude or during a rapid decompression, the nitrogen dissolved in the body comes out of solution. If the nitrogen is forced to leave the solution too rapidly, Bubbles form in different areas of the body causing a variety of signs and symptoms. The most common symptom is joint pain, which is known as the bends. What to do when altitude-induced DCS occurs? Put on oxygen mask immediately and switch the regulator to 100% oxygen. Begin an emergency descent and land as soon as possible. Even if the symptoms disappear during descent, land and seek medical evaluation while continuing to breathe oxygen. If one of the symptoms is joint pain, keep the affected area still, do not try to work pain out by moving the joint around. Upon landing, seek medical assistance from an FAA medical officer, AME, military flight surgeon, or a hyperbaric medicine specialist. Be aware that a physician not specialized in aviation or hyperbaric medicine may not be familiar with this type of medical problem. Definitive medical treatment may involve the use of a hyperbaric chamber operated by specially trained personnel. Delayed signs and symptoms of altitude-induced DCS can occur after return to ground level regardless of presence during flight. DCS after scuba diving Scuba diving subjects the body to increased pressure, which allows more nitrogen to dissolve in body tissues and fluids. Figure 17 to 11 the reduction of atmospheric pressure that accompanies flying can produce physical problems for scuba divers. A pilot or passenger who intends to fly after scuba diving should allow the body sufficient time to rid itself of excess nitrogen absorbed during diving. If not, DCS due to evolved gas can occur during exposure to low altitude and create a serious in-flight emergency. The recommended waiting time before going to flight altitudes of up to 8,000 feet is at least 12 hours after diving that does not require controlled ascent, non-decompression stop diving, and at least 24 hours after diving that does require controlled ascent, decompression stop diving. The waiting time before going to flight altitudes above 8,000 feet should be at least 24 hours after any scuba dive. These recommended altitudes are actual flight altitudes above mean sea. Level, MSL, 
and not pressurized cabin altitudes. This takes into consideration the risk of decompression of the aircraft during flight. Vision in flight Of all the senses, vision is the most important for safe flight. Most of the things perceived while flying are visual or heavily supplemented by vision. As remarkable and vital as it is, vision is subject to limitations, such as illusions and blind spots. The more a pilot understands about the eyes and how they function, the easier it is to use vision effectively and compensate for potential problems. The eye functions much like a camera. Its structure includes an aperture, a lens, a mechanism for focusing, and a surface for registering images. Light enters through the cornea at the front of the eyeball, travels through the lens, and falls on the retina. The retina contains light-sensitive cells that convert light energy into electrical impulses that travel through nerves to the brain. The brain interprets the electrical signals to form images. There are two kinds of light-sensitive cells in the eyes, rods and cones. The cones are responsible for all color vision, from appreciating a glorious sunset to discerning the subtle shades in a fine painting. Cones are present throughout the retina, but are concentrated toward the center of the field of vision at the back of the retina. There is a small pit called the fovea where almost all the light-sensing cells are cones. This is the area where most looking occurs, the center of the visual field where detail, color sensitivity, and resolution are highest. While the cones and their associated nerves are well-suited to detecting fine detail and color in high light levels, the rods are better able to detect movement and provide vision in dim light. The rods are unable to discern color, but are very sensitive at low light levels. The trouble with rods is that a large amount of light overwhelms them, and they take longer to reset and adapt to the dark again. There are so many cones in the fovea that are at the very center of the visual field, but virtually has no rods at all. So in low light, the middle of the visual field is not very sensitive, but farther from the fovea, the rods are more numerous and provide the major portion of night vision. Vision Types There are three types of vision, photopic, mesopic, and scotopic. Each type functions under different sensory stimuli or ambient light conditions. Photopic Vision Photopic vision provides the capability for seeing color and resolving fine detail, 20-20ths or better, but it functions only in good illumination. Photopic vision is experienced during daylight or when a high level of artificial illumination exists. The cones concentrated in the fovea centralis of the eye are primarily responsible for vision in bright light. Figure 17 to 12, because of the high light level, rhodopsin, which is a biological pigment of the retina that is responsible for both the formation of the photoreceptor cells and the first events in the perception of light, is bleached out causing the rod cells to become less effective. Mesopic vision Mesopic vision is achieved by a combination of rods and cones and is experienced at dawn, dusk, and during full moonlight. Visual acuity steadily decreases as available light decreases and color perception changes because the cones become less effective. Mesopic viewing period is considered the most dangerous period for viewing. As cone sensitivity decreases, pilots should use off-center vision and proper scanning techniques to detect objects during low-light levels. Scotopic vision Scotopic vision is experienced under low-light levels and the cones become ineffective, 
resulting in poor resolution of detail. Visual acuity decreases to 20-200 or less and enables a person to see only objects the size of or larger than the Big E on visual acuity testing charts from 20 feet away. In other words, a person must stand at 20 feet to see what can normally be seen at 200 feet under daylight conditions. When using scotopic vision, color perception is lost, and a night-blind spot in the central field of view appears at low light levels when the cone cell sensitivity is lost. Central Blind Spot The area where the optic nerve connects to the retina in the back of each eye is known as the optic disc. There is a total absence of cones and rods in this area, and consequently, each eye is completely blind in this spot. Figure 17 to 14, as a result, it is referred to as the blind spot that everyone has in each eye. Under normal binocular vision conditions, both eyes are used together. This is not a problem, because an object cannot be in the blind spot of both eyes at the same time. On the other hand, where the field of vision of one eye is obstructed by an object, windshield divider, or another aircraft, a visual target could fall in the blind spot of the other eye and remain undetected. Figure 17 to 15 provides a dramatic example of the eye's blind spot. 1. Hold this page at an arm's length. 2. Completely cover your left eye, without closing or pressing on it, using your hand or other flat object. 3. With your right eye, stare directly at the airplane on the left side of the picture page. In your periphery, you will notice the black X on the right side of the picture. 4. Slowly move the page closer to you while continuing to stare at the airplane. 5. When the page is about 16 to 18 inches from you, the black X should disappear completely because it has been imaged onto the blind spot of your right eye. Resist the temptation to move your right eye while the black X is gone or else it reappears. Keep staring at the airplane. 6. As you continue to look at the airplane, keep moving the page closer to you a few more inches, and the black X will come back into view. 7. There is an interval where you are able to move the page a few inches backward and forward, and the black X will be gone. This demonstrates to you the extent of your blind spot. 8. You can try the same thing again, except this time with your right eye covered stare at the black X with your left eye. Move the page in closer and the airplane will disappear. Another way to check your blind spot is to do a similar test outside at night, when there is a full moon. Cover your left eye, looking at the full moon with your right eye. Gradually move your right eye to the left, and maybe slightly up or down. Before long, all you will be able to see is the large halo around the full moon, the entire moon itself will seem to have disappeared. Empty Field Myopia Empty field myopia is a condition that usually occurs when flying above the clouds or in a haze layer that provides nothing specific to focus on outside the aircraft. This causes the eyes to relax and seek a comfortable focal distance that may range from 10 to 30 feet. For the pilot, this means looking without seeing, which is dangerous. Searching out and focusing on distant light sources, no matter how dim, helps prevent the onset of empty field myopia. Night Vision There are many good reasons to fly at night, but pilots must keep in mind that the risks of night flying are different than during the day, and oftentimes higher. Figure 17 to 16, pilots who are cautious and educated on night flying techniques can mitigate those risks 
and become very comfortable and proficient in the task. Night Blind Spot It is estimated that once fully adapted to darkness, the rods are 10,000 times more sensitive to light than the cones, making them the primary receptors for night vision. Since the cones are concentrated near the fovea, the rods are also responsible for much of the peripheral vision. The concentration of cones in the fovea can make a night-blind spot in the center of the field of vision. To see an object clearly at night, the pilot must expose the rods to the image. This can be done by looking 5 degrees to 10 degrees off-center of the object to be seen. This can be tried in a dim light in a darkened room. When looking directly at the light, it dims or disappears altogether. When looking slightly off-center, it becomes clearer and brighter. When looking directly at an object, the image is focused mainly on the fovea, where detail is best seen. At night, the ability to see an object in the center of the visual field is reduced as the cones lose much of their sensitivity and the rods become more sensitive. Looking off-center can help compensate for this night-blind spot. Along with the loss of sharpness, acuity, and color at night, depth perception, and judgment of size may be lost. Dark Adaptation Dark adaptation is the adjustment of the human eye to a dark environment. That adjustment takes longer depending on the amount of light in the environment that a person has just left. Moving from a bright room into a dark one takes longer than moving from a dim room and going into a dark one. While the cones adapt rapidly to changes in light intensities, the rods take much longer. Walking from bright sunlight into a dark movie theater is an example of this dark adaptation period experience. The rods can take approximately 30 minutes to fully adapt to darkness. A bright light, however, can completely destroy night adaptation, leaving night vision severely compromised while the adaptation process is repeated. Scanning techniques Scanning techniques are very important in identifying objects at night. To scan effectively, pilots must look from right to left or left to right. They should begin scanning at the greatest distance an object can be perceived, top, and move inward toward the position of the aircraft, bottom. For each stop, an area approximately 30 degrees wide should be scanned. The duration of each stop is based on the degree of detail that is required, but no stop should last longer than 2 to 3 seconds. When moving from one viewing point to the next, pilots should overlap the previous field of view by 10 degrees. Off-center viewing is another type of scan that pilots can use during night flying. It is a technique that requires an object be viewed by looking 10 degrees above, below, or to either side of the object. Figure 17 to 19, in this manner, the peripheral vision can maintain contact with an object. With off-center vision, the images of an object viewed longer than 2 to 3 seconds will disappear. This occurs because the rods reach a photochemical equilibrium that prevents any further response until the scene changes. This produces a potentially unsafe operating condition. To overcome this night vision limitation, pilots must be aware of the phenomenon and avoid viewing an object for longer than two or three seconds. The peripheral field of vision will continue to pick up the object when the eyes are shifted from one off-center point to another. Night Vision Protection Several things can be done to help with the dark adaptation process and to keep the eyes adapted to darkness. 
Some of the steps pilots and flight crews can take to protect their night vision are described in the following paragraphs. Sunglasses. If a night flight is scheduled, pilots and crew members should wear neutral density and 15 sunglasses or equivalent filter lenses when exposed to bright sunlight. This precaution increases the rate of dark adaptation at night and improves night visual sensitivity. Oxygen supply. Unaided night vision depends on optimum function and sensitivity of the rods of the retina. Lack of oxygen to the rods, hypoxia, significantly reduces their sensitivity. Sharp clear vision, with the best being equal to 20 to 20 vision, requires significant oxygen especially at night. Without supplemental oxygen, an individual's night vision declines measurably at pressure altitudes above 4,000 feet. As altitude increases, the available oxygen decreases, degrading night vision. Compounding the problem is fatigue, which minimizes physiological well-being. Adding fatigue to high-altitude exposure is a recipe for disaster. In fact, if flying at night at an altitude of 12,000 feet, the pilot may actually see elements of his or her normal vision missing or not in focus. Missing visual elements resemble the missing pixels in a digital image while unfocused vision is dim and washed out. For the pilot suffering the effects of hypoxic hypoxia, a simple descent to a lower altitude may not be sufficient to re-establish vision. For example, a climb from 8,000 feet to 12,000 feet for 30 minutes does not mean a descent to 8,000 feet will rectify the problem. Visual acuity may not be regained for over an hour. Thus, it is important to remember, altitude and fatigue have a profound effect on a pilot's ability to see. High-intensity lighting If, during the flight, any high-intensity lighting areas are encountered, attempt to turn the aircraft away and fly in the periphery of the lighted area. This will not expose the eyes to such a large amount of light all at once. If possible, plan your route to avoid direct overflight of built-up, brightly lit areas. Flight deck lighting. Flight deck lighting should be kept as low as possible so that the light does not monopolize night vision. After reaching the desired flight altitude, pilots should allow time to adjust to the flight conditions. This includes readjustment of instrument lights and orientation to outside. References. During the adjustment period, night vision should continue to improve until optimum night adaptation is achieved. When it is necessary to read maps, charts, and checklists, use a dim white light flashlight and avoid shining it in your or any other crew member's eyes. Airfield precautions. Oftentimes, pilots have no say in how airfield operations are handled, but listed below are some precautions that can be taken to make night flying safer and help protect night vision. Airfield lighting should be reduced to the lowest usable intensity. Maintenance personnel should practice light discipline with headlights and flashlights. Position the aircraft at a part of the airfield where the least amount of lighting exists. Select approach and departure routes that avoid highways and residential areas where illumination can impair night vision. Self-imposed stress. Night flight can be more fatiguing and stressful than day flight, and many self-imposed stressors can limit night vision. Pilots can control this type of stress by knowing the factors that can cause self-imposed stressors. Some of these factors are listed in the following paragraphs. 
drugs. Drugs can seriously degrade visual acuity during the day, and especially at night. Pilots who become ill should consult an aviation medical examiner, AME, or flight surgeon, as to which drugs are appropriate to take while flying. Exhaustion Pilots who become fatigued during a night flight will not be mentally alert and will respond more slowly to situations requiring immediate action. Exhausted pilots tend to concentrate on one aspect of a situation without considering the total requirement. Their performance may become a safety hazard depending on the degree of fatigue, and instead of using proper scanning techniques may get fixated on the instruments or stare off rather than multitask. Poor physical conditioning To overcome poor physical conditioning, pilots should participate in regular exercise programs. People who are physically fit become less fatigued during flight and have better night scanning efficiency. However, too much exercise in a given day may leave crew members too fatigued for night flying. Alcohol Alcohol is a sedative and its use impairs both coordination and judgment. As a result, pilots who are impaired by alcohol fail to apply the proper techniques of night vision. They are likely to stare at objects and to neglect scanning techniques. The amount of alcohol consumed determines the degree to which night vision is affected. The effects of alcohol are long-lasting, and the residual effects of alcohol can also impair visual scanning efficiency. Tobacco Of all the self-imposed stressors, cigarette smoking most decreases visual sensitivity at night. Smoking significantly increases the amount of carbon monoxide carried by the hemoglobin in red blood cells. This reduces the blood's capacity to combine with oxygen, so less oxygen is carried in the blood. Hypoxia caused by carbon monoxide poisoning affects peripheral vision and dark adaptation. The results are the same as those for hypoxia caused by high altitude. Smoking 3 cigarettes in rapid succession Oregon 20 to 30 cigarettes within a 24-hour period may saturate from 8 to 10% of the capacity of hemoglobin. Smokers lose 20% of their night vision capability at sea level, which is equal to a physiological altitude of 5,000 feet. Hypoglycemia and nutritional deficiency Missing or postponing meals can cause low blood sugar, which impairs night flight performance. Low blood sugar levels may result in stomach contractions, distraction, breakdown in habit pattern, and a shortened attention span likewise, an insufficient consumption of vitamin A may also impair night vision. Foods high in vitamin A include eggs, butter, cheese, liver, apricots, peaches, carrots, squash, spinach, peas, and most types of greens. High quantities of vitamin A do not increase night vision, but a lack of vitamin A certainly impairs it. Distance estimation and depth perception Knowledge of the mechanisms and cues affecting distance estimation and depth perception assist pilots in judging distances at night. These cues may be monocular or binocular. The monocular cues that aid in distance estimation and depth perception include motion parallax, geometric perspective, retinal image size, and aerial perspective. Motion parallax Motion parallax refers to the apparent motion of stationary objects as viewed by an observer moving across the landscape. When the pilot or crew member looks outside the aircraft perpendicular to the direction of travel, 
near objects appear to move backward, past, or opposite the path of motion, far objects seem to move in the direction of motion, or remain fixed. The rate of apparent movement depends on the distance the observer is from the object. Geometric Perspective An object may appear to have a different shape when viewed at varying distances and from different angles. Geometric perspective cues include linear perspective, apparent foreshortening, and vertical position in the field. Linear perspective, parallel lines, such as runway lights, power lines, and railroad tracks, tend to converge as distance from the observer increases. Apparent foreshortening, the true shape of an object or a terrain feature appears elliptical when viewed from a distance. Vertical position in the field, objects or terrain features farther away from the observer appear higher on the horizon than those closer to the observer. Aerial perspective. The clarity of an object and the shadow cast by it are perceived by the brain and are cues for estimating distance. Subtle variations in color or shade are clearer the closer the observer is to an object. However, as distance increases, these distinctions may become blurry. The same applies to an object detail or texture. As a person gets farther from an object, its discrete details become less apparent. Another important fact to remember while flying at night is that every object casts a shadow from a light source. The direction in which the shadow is cast depends on the position of the light source. If the shadow of an object is cast toward the observer, the object is closer than the light source is to the observer. Binocular cues Binocular cues of an object are dependent upon the slightly different viewing angle of each eye of an object. Binocular perception is useful only when the object is close enough to make an obvious difference in the viewing angle of both eyes. In the flight environment, most distances outside the cockpit are so great that binocular cues are of little, if any, value. In addition, binocular cues operate on a more subconscious level than monocular cues and are performed automatically. Night Vision Illusions There are many different types of visual illusions that commonly occur at night. Anticipating and maintaining awareness of them is usually the best way to avoid them. Autokinesis Autokinesis is caused by staring at a single point of light against a dark background for more than a few seconds. After a few moments, the light appears to move on its own. Apparent movement of the light source will begin in about 8 to 10 seconds. To prevent this illusion, focus the eyes on objects at varying distances and avoid fixating on one source of light. This illusion can be eliminated or reduced by visual scanning by increasing the number of lights or by varying the light intensity. The most important of the three solutions is visual scanning. A light or lights should not be stared at for more than 10 seconds. False horizon. A false horizon can occur when the natural horizon is obscured or not readily apparent. It can be generated by confusing bright stars and city lights. It can also occur while flying toward the shore of an ocean or a large lake. Because of the relative darkness of the water, the lights along the shoreline can be mistaken for stars in the sky. Reversible Perspective Illusion At night, an aircraft may appear to be moving away from a second aircraft when it is, in fact, approaching a second aircraft. This illusion often occurs when an aircraft is flying parallel to another's course. 
To determine the direction of flight, pilots should observe aircraft lights and their relative position to the horizon. If the intensity of the lights increases, the aircraft is approaching. If the lights dim, the aircraft is moving away. Size Distance Illusion This illusion results from viewing a source of light that is increasing or decreasing in luminance, brightness. Pilots may interpret the light as approaching or retreating. Fascination, fixation. This illusion occurs when pilots ignore orientation cues and fix their attention on a goal or an object. Student pilots tend to have this happen when they are concentrating on the aircraft instruments or attempting to land. They become fixated on one task and forget to look at what is going on around them. At night, this can be especially dangerous because aircraft ground closure rates are difficult to determine and there may be minimal time to correct the situation. Flicker Vertigo A light flickering at a rate between 4 and 20 cycles per second can produce unpleasant and dangerous reactions. Such conditions as nausea, vomiting, and vertigo may occur. On rare occasions, convulsions and unconsciousness may also occur. Proper scanning techniques at night can prevent pilots from getting flicker vertigo. Night Landing Illusions Landing illusions occur in many forms. Above featureless terrain at night, there is a natural tendency to fly a lower-than-normal approach. Elements that cause any type of visual. Obscurities, such as rain, haze, or a dark runway environment, can also cause low approaches. Bright lights, steep surrounding terrain, and a wide runway can produce the illusion of being too low with a tendency to fly a higher-than-normal approach. A set of regularly spaced lights along a road or highway can appear to be runway lights. Pilots have even mistaken the lights on moving trains as runway or approach lights. Bright runway or approach lighting systems can create the illusion that the aircraft is closer to the runway, especially where few lights illuminate the surrounding terrain. Prior to flying at night, it is best to learn and know the challenges of the area in which you are flying in. Study the area and know how to navigate your way through areas that may pose a problem at night. For example, many areas near water may be obscured by low-lying clouds or fog. To help deal with this type of situation, it is important to have a plan before you leave the ground. In the daytime, fly the routes and passes that you will be flying at night and determine the minimum altitude you are willing to use at night. If weather prevents you from maintaining the altitude that you planned, Make a decision early to turn 180 degrees and land at an alternate airport with better weather conditions. Always consider safer alternatives rather than hope things will work out by taking a chance. Pilots who fly at night should strongly consider oxygen supplementation at altitudes and times not required by the FAA, especially at night when critical judgment and hand-eye coordination is necessary, example, IFR or if he-she is a smoker or not perfectly healthy. Enhanced Night Vision Systems Synthetic Vision Systems, SVS, and Enhanced Flight Vision Systems, EFVS, are two systems that can improve the safety of flight at night. The technology of both is evolving rapidly and being used more and more. Synthetic Vision System a synthetic vision system, SVS, is an electronic means to display a synthetic vision image of the external scene topography to the flight crew. 
Figure 17 to 24, it is not a real-time image like that produced by an EFVS. Unlike EFVS, SVS requires a terrain and obstacle database, a precise navigation solution, and a display. The terrain image is based on the use of data from a digital elevation model, DEM, that is stored within the SVS. With SVS, the synthetic terrain slash vision image is intended to enhance pilot awareness of spatial position relative to important features in all visibility conditions. This is particularly useful during critical phases of flight, such as takeoff, approach, and landing, where important features, such as terrain, obstacles, runways, and landmarks, may be depicted on the SVS display. Figure 17 to 25, during approach operations, the obvious advantages of SVS are that the digital terrain image remains on the pilot's display regardless of how poor the visibility is outside. An SVS image can be displayed on either a head-down display or head-up display, HUD, however, to date, SVS has only been certified on head-down displays. Development efforts to display a synthetic image on a HUD are currently underway, as are efforts that would combine SVS with a real-time sensor image produced by an EFVS. These systems are known as combined vision systems. While SVS is currently certified as an aid to situation awareness only, the FAA and aviation industry are working on defining operational concepts and airworthiness criteria that would enable SVS to be used for operational credit in certain low visibility conditions. Other future enhancements to SVS displays could include integrating ADSB to display traffic information. Enhanced Flight Vision System Enhanced Vision, EV, or Enhanced Flight Vision System, EFVS, is an electronic means to provide a display of the external scene by use of an imaging sensor, such as a forward-looking infrared, FLIR, or millimeter wave radar, MMWR. In 2004, 14 CFR Part 91, Section 91.175 was amended to reflect that operators conducting straight-in instrument approach procedures, in other than Category 2 or Category 3 operations, may now operate below the published decision height, DH, or minimum descent altitude, MDA, when using an approved EFVS shown on the pilot's HUD. This rule change provides operational credit for EV equipage. No such credit exists for SV. Chapter Summary This chapter provides an introduction to aeromedical factors relating to flight activities. More detailed information on the subjects discussed in this chapter is available in the Aeronautical Information Manual, AIM, and online at www.faa.gov.